procedure, we, we can't actually speak unless we're invited, but I imagine that, I assume I've been invited to speak. So. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> the Buddha was a good psychologist, wasn't he? <laughs> he knew that he could not um, really get people interested unless they were already interested themselves. So... Um, as I say, I don't know many of most of you, and I don't know exactly the kind of practice you've done before, the kind of tradition you've been following before, what you sort of... Um, all I know is, if you want to know something about a connection with Gil, is that we've been... Uh, I, I'm staying at a monastery in uh, um, about three hours, three hours north of um, San Francisco, Theravada, an Ajansha tradition monastery, and we've been reading Gil's book, new book, um, uh, once a day the last week or so. So we have a kind of connection somehow. <laughs> I appreciate very much what he has to say. I was thinking it's probably going to be a little classic. Because it's kind of refreshing. The simplicity of his um, presentation being used to a more kind of dhamma jargons and you know, nice to know that some books are not for for free distribution <laughs> and you get a sense of maybe a deeper freedom to express the way one wants to express oneself so this is very appreciated now uh, I'll be here for about a week so you'll have plenty of time to talk to me if you want to and I'm, I'll be, have plenty of time to talk to you too I'll answer any question if, if I can answer them and uh, tonight, um, um, I'll share with you some of my uh, experience and practice. And uh, we're all here, I gather, because we have a shared interest in um, this teaching, the teaching of the Buddha. And uh, maybe some of you don't really know the, 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 the teaching itself, don't really know what's this, um, the path that was shown by the, um, the Buddha himself, was, was, where was this path leading to? Mm. But certainly we all know where we are right now. We might not be very clear about where we are going, <laughs> but at least we have an idea where we are at right now. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't think, if you're like me, I don't think anybody will sort of awaken to this interest in uh, walking uh, a path of, let's say, self-knowledge, self-understanding, unless there is a dissatisfaction somewhere. I don't think I'm the only one, am I? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be neurotic or <laughs> be out of a, a kind of a psychiatric hospital or have had terrific kind of traumas or dramas in your life just to realize that life is really an insatisfactory business when the mind is not awakened, when the mind is not uh, really um, knowing um, what's what, so to speak, to express it simply, <laughs> basic of life. But we do all have a sense that there is something more than just um, getting up in the morning, eating, sleeping, having sex, um, drinking, being merry, 
and just distracting oneself. I think most of us have a sense that there's a bit more to it somehow. And um, um, there is a, a real kind of deep yearning of uh, in the human heart to um, find uh, something which most of us don't know what it is. We really we, we wonder. We we can create uh, ideas, images. Um, objects out of this yearning. We're yearning for something, we don't quite know what it is. We call it freedom, we call it love, we call it God perhaps, we call it um, the divine, we call it um, the truth. Um, we can just call it me, <laughs> yearning for me, <laughs> my real me. And um, this yearning is really um, this movement of the heart, which is um, mostly unacknowledged. You know, we're so busy um, going somewhere, doing something, becoming somebody. We're so um, keen on, on distracting ourselves from real, real um, uh, listening to this yearning that it's often, it is often left as a kind of dim, kind of... Um, a kind of a, a very soft thing in the background of the, the humdrums of our everyday life, like a little whisper, you know, whispers us, wake up, wake up. And yet we don't know how to do that a lot and we don't know how to go about. So being here, it's certainly a, a good step, just uh, having... Um, uh, a, a common interest in um, finding what this yearning is about. This is what, from the Buddhist perspective, you could say the experience of the Buddha was uh, he was a prince, as many of you perhaps know. He was, you know, he has everything one can wish in, as, as a human being. He had every possible luxury. And uh, all his wishes were satisfied, all his worldly wishes on the sort of worldly plane. You could say he had a complete satisfaction on a material level. Or he, he was totally fulfilled at that level. Yet, um, it happened one day that he went out of his father's palace and uh, uh, with this um, well-known charioteer, he discovered that... Um, well, maybe I have to backtrack a little bit. His, his father, who was a, a king, had uh, made every possible attempt to uh, prevent the Buddha from seeing the, 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 the facts of life. So he was brought up to just um, in an environment that kept um, you know, reinforcing the, 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 all the possible delight of life. He had every delights delightful experience, a delightful sight, delightful uh, sound around him. He had three different palaces and he could move around. And when you are in Asia, you understand. I, I never used to understand why the Buddha had three palaces until you go to Asia. <laughs> and then you've got rainy season and you really realize that you need another place. When <laughs> and then you've got a, the hot season and you probably need to move north somewhere. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so on. So... So he was never really exposed to any, any of the suffering of, 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 of the human life. 
until he is he he sneaked out of his father's palace and um, discovered for the first time an old man, a sick man, and a dead man. He, he suddenly saw that what awaits all of us, old age, sickness, and death. And of course, the fourth uh, sight was the sight of a summoner, what we call a summoner, or a uh, spiritual seeker, or a sadhu, or a pilgrim, a monk, or nun. And so he, um, that was, uh, you know, he, he realized him too will be subject, subject to old age, sickness, and death. And that was a terrifying shock, a real, sh- um, you know, a wake-up call for him, who never really had any inkling that that was the case, which is rather strange, isn't it? To imagine that somebody could live until the age of 29 without knowing that um, there was any uh, people aging, anyone aging or getting sick. Or His father was obviously very clever. <laughs> very, 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 uh... So... Um, when he saw this, it, this prompted him to actually find out what was there, what was there in life that was um, maybe um, other, or what was the meaning of life? What was, you know, what was the point of being alive and just getting old, getting sick and, and dying? I mean, what was the point of being alive in the first place, if that was the only thing that was waiting for, awaiting us? And from that day onward, then he left the palace and started his quest or his uh, journey, spiritual journey, and up to the um, final moment when he uh, attained uh, full enlightenment and realized the truth, realized the um, Nibbana and the ultimate truth. So this seed of, of enlightenment is in all of us and this yearning is in all of us and we don't often give it a lot of room. And we don't know how to go about a lot of the time. We have teachings, we have many teachings. I mean, Western culture, we have a plethora of teachings of all traditions. So on one level, it is very helpful because we, we, we can let go of many of uh, religious prejudices and, 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 and dogmatic views and we, we, we have an understanding of the heart perhaps of all religion, what's really at the heart of, of it all. But at the same time we are very confused because a passive practice is a passive practice. You, you, you have to have some direction, some means, some, um, uh, some guidance, you know, and you can't just mix everything, you've got a big mixed bag of every tradition. So that can be very confusing. We, we deal with a lot of confusion. We have to deal with a lot of doubts and confusion in our society, in our culture, um, on a religious um, level as well, because we, unless you have some experience and some realization, you're still left with a, with a mind that just doesn't know. You have a lot of knowledge, but you still don't know. And that's very painful, isn't it? It's like... You, you, you know everything about how to dance, but you never danced. You know, or you never, you know, you've read all the books on cooking, but you never tasted a good pizza. <laughs> or whatever, I, I don't want, don't imagine that I like pizza, by the way. <laughs> I have 
I've said that once and <laughs> got inundated with feedback for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, you know, we, we don't have the, in a way, the, the, the joy, maybe the, enough of the joy that comes from knowing for oneself what's what, as used to say Ajahn Buddha Dasa, <laughs> to quote him. Many of you probably know this famous Thai monk who is also a great thinker and one of a great influence in the Thai tradition. Was really, was uh, been very important in the evolution of Buddhism in Thailand. And um, but yet we start where we are. And where are we right now? Where are we? What are we seeking? What are we wanting? What are we looking for? Hmm. What I appreciate myself about the Buddhist teaching is it's the simplicity of its approach, for one thing, and also the clarity of the field of investigation. It's, it, it, the Buddha really started at the roots of all things. It started with the mind, right at the beginning. Where are we? What is this mind? What is this body? What are, who, are, who are we? This body, this mind, what, what is it? You know? In his day, uh, in his day uh, there was the notion of a soul or Atman. If you, some of you are familiar with Hinduism. And uh, he, um, in a way, he broke away completely for that notion of a, of, of a soul, of the idea of a, of a permanent entity there, a personal permanent entity and uh, gave a description of the human, a human being, which, was, which is very interesting, because it really takes away so much of the personal touch, which we love. We love being someone somehow. I, you know, all of us want, to, if you're a Mary, you, you want to be really a real Mary. You don't want to be just you know, a, a bundle of five candles called mind and body, a bundle of, you know, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. You know, who wants to be just that? It's kind of, it's cool, isn't it? <laughs> Suddenly cooling. <laughs> just to um, consider oneself, just this heap of... Um, what they call the, the, the candles, or candles is sometimes translated as heap, bundle, or group. Or. So he starts from the beginning. You know, we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. We have mind, consciousness. And he says, "What do you do with them? <laughs> what happened to them when you look at things? What happened to them when you hear things? What happened to you?" When you contact sense object, when you, you know, when your, your, your mind is moving in one direction or another, what does it do? What does the mind, how does the mind interpret those things? How does the mind react? Do you like it? Don't you like it? Do you get angry? Do you get upset? Do you get moody? Do you go up and down? Do you, you know, do you love it? Do you hate it? It just starts with the basic, isn't it? Can't fool ourselves a lot. Can't pretend a lot when we start from that place. 
Who wants to start there anyway? It's complicated, isn't it? We'd rather go up to the divine. It's a lot simpler up there. Or around, wherever it is. <laughs> Who wants to look at all this kind of, you know, the activities of one's mind, one's body? The delusion that permeates all the all our assumptions about who we are, what we are, who are other pe- what are other people, and so on. Yeah. Who wants to get into this? It requires a particular uh, interest, in a way. And this interest is not, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's um, fostered by certain conditions. This is where the Buddha was very, in a way, very practical, because he didn't start with you know, declaring what was the ultimate truth, it started declaring what were, what was our problems, what, where, where we where we were kind of floundering and 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 getting confused. And so, um, unfortunately, it didn't leave us there. You know. He didn't say there is suffering and that's it. Goodbye, guys. You know, <laughs> I'll see you next lifetime. <laughs> He, 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 he pointed out the problem, <coughs> he pointed out the fact that there was uh, a, a de- general dissatisfaction as human beings, but it's not that life is, uh, is, is dissatisfying in itself. Life is okay, life is fine. Beautiful day today, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Wonderful day. Maybe you had a wonderful meeting with good friends, good food, good music, good, good everything. So what's wrong with life? What do we do with it? This is really where we go off, tangent. You know, we have a good day and then the next day is not as good and then we start mourning, (laughs) grieving, you know. We have a bad day, we cling to it and we get desperate and ready to kill ourselves. You know, we have a bit of pain, we're ready to, you know, offer ourselves as, you know, on the operating table for a little kind of pain in our abdomen or something, gut cancer. So this is what, in a way, what the the teaching is, um, you know, is is showing us, is how we respond to life, how we respond to this mind and this body that is really our home, isn't it? This is where we live all the time. Joe, Mary, Harry, friend, whatever. We all live with us, with ourselves, with me. And the Buddha says, you know, do you want to be happy or miserable? <laughs> it's simple, isn't it? What do you want? Happy or miserable? So everybody say, I want to be happy. You know, I want to, I want to have a great time. I want to love. I want to dance. I want to sing. I want to, you know. So here comes the news. Say, well, if you want to be happy, there's a little bit of work to do. Oh, I'm not interested, you know. I was just a blind, deluded. <laughs> of course, you wouldn't say that rationally. You would never admit that. But I've been in this business for over 22 years, and I can assure you, without absolutely any doubt whatsoever, underlined, that the ego is completely committed to the wrong path. <laughs> this is, I can assure you, without a, I'm an expert. <laughs> Is definitely don't believe any 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 of it. <laughs> Whatever you want to believe, just do your experience. It's fine, you know. 
But I can assure you, the, 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 the self, the ego, what I call the personality, it's got interesting side. I mean, we've spent how many years, you know, pampering it and turning it into this kind of interesting social creature. But once you let go of that, when you go to a monastery, you know, you don't, you know, you, you know the social creatures doesn't survive very well in monastery, you know, <laughs> with mindfulness and silence and people just looking at you with blank faces and, you know, which stirs up all your demons and what did I do wrong? Is it my fault? <laughs> and um, it, um, it, it's inter- really interesting because here we are, you know, we, we, we've, we've got me all day long, all night, all day, and I'm not, Buddha never said you should kill yourself. <laughs> First precept, remember, it's panatipata, where at many, you know, I undertake the precept to refrain from harming any living creatures. So he's never encouraged, you know, um, killing the personality. But he's um, showing you a path that is um, leading us to a profound understanding of our human life, which doesn't go beyond the personality, I'm afraid. It goes through it. You know, it goes through it. You have to really enter yourself in a way to understand what is beyond it. You can't, you know, you can't bypass it. It doesn't work. Bypassing it leads to repression. It leads to frustration. It leads to more delusion, really. It's very simple. You can't bypass it, but you need to know how to guide. You know, we're always looking for a teacher somehow. We don't realize that, you know, what we are looking for is, is our own teacher. And it's here. The teacher is not out there. The teacher is, as you know, you've read enough book, I'm sure, to know, to, to have realized by now that the teacher is not out there externally. Yeah. The teacher is pointing the way here in the heart itself. And um, how to befriend this inner guide or this inner wisdom is not easy, is it? Because it goes so much against the grain of this ego committed 100% to something other than the path of awakening. This is an English understatement, by the way, just in case you haven't noticed that it's a joke. (laughs) It doesn't work in America. It's wonderful, you know. (laughs) Definitely not committed to... um, you know. But it's trainable. This is the good news. It's trainable. It's not hopeless. You can actually train it and befriend it and it's it can help you. It's like a it can be an, an ally ally on your path. You know, because that's all you've got basically. I mean what else do you have? This mind, this body, me. You haven't got you know, you've got friends, sure. But when you're on your own in your room, on your deathbed, you won't have a lot of people, you know, around. You'll have to know yourself what's, what to do to get to the other side. And um,
we we have a path we have a path of practice the Buddha says very clearly how this suffering arises first noble truth uh, some of you are familiar with it some of you are not you know just basically you know the whole bundle of me from the Buddha's perspective is painful he adds not getting what you want is painful getting what you don't want is painful in brief this whole life that one is attached to that I call me mine is you know a, a, a painful lump and then he tells us how this how that happened why, why is it so painful basically because we are clinging to something which is ultimately limited limited and conditioned it's conditioned by what Buddha says by greed hatred and delusion he doesn't ask us to believe what in what he says but he's, he says this you know find out for yourself basically your conditioned self is 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 a result of unskillful mental states so if you um, some of you maybe have read the Dhammapada, the first ver the first verses of the Dhammapada is, you know, uh, the mind is forerunner of all things. Things are mind-made and they're led by the mind. And if you act or speak in unskillful way, then suffering will follow you just as the wheel of a cart follows the hoof of an ox. And then it goes on. Um, all things, mind is a forerunner of all things. Things are mind-made, they're led by the mind, and if you act or speak in, um, if you act by body, speech, and mind in a skillful way, then happiness will follow you, just as your own shadow that never leaves you. you know? So, um, in a way, this is uh, very much the, the, the training that the Buddha is uh, offering to us. To find that through our meditation practice, through our uh, commitment to um, ethical guidelines, to find out what is really leading to happiness and what, is le what isn't, what is leading us to more misery. Because even though there is suffering in life, uh, he points out that most of the time we keep piling up on top of the just natural unsatisfactoriness of, of human life. You know, and we don't have to do that. You know, we, we, we don't, it's not necessary yet. Unless we awaken to the way we, we habitually function, we don't actually go beyond it. That's the thing. Unless we awaken, we, we, never go, we never get out of the traps. Keep like the hamsters. You know, we kept treading the meal, you know, turn, you know, turning the wheel. And we never really go beyond it. Now, that sounds like a really mighty project, really difficult to do. You know. But the good news is that unless you do it, you'll be really miserable. <laughs> so we don't have choice at some level. You know. it's, uh, the, the path of practice is a path of restraint at some level because it's, it's channeling the energy of this mind and body. We can actually, through this path of practice, channel the energy in the right direction. But to know the right direction, we have to have the eyes open. And the eyes, you could say, stand for the heart, for the, the awakened heart. We have to know, not just, of course, intellectually, that's very important, just to, just to know the teaching, 
the, the tenets of the, the Buddhist teachings is, is very important foundation. It's the first step. And then we also have to come to realize this for ourselves, to integrate it, to make it really one complete part and parcel of our own being, you know, so that we don't have to think about it. We don't have to kind of um, you know, get our mind all worked up about how to figure, figure things out, you know, to keep figuring out what to do and not to do. You know, so the path of practice comes through this um, commitment to um, a practice of um, a sila, what we call sila, which is um, the set of precepts that is basically sila. You could say the heart of it all is just um, harmlessness. You know, non-violence, ahimsa. It's just compassion, in other words. That's the foundation of, of your, of your ethic, ethical practice, you know, your passive ethics. Basically, to be totally committed to compassion, compassionate action, and um, harmlessness. Inwardly, outwardly, towards yourself, towards all beings. And the precept of refraining from killing, stealing, lying, um, you know, harmful speech and um, uh, taking drugs and intoxicant that leads you to more confusion. It's, you could say, the, the, the heart, the, the lifeline through all these precepts is, is really a commitment to compassion, to kindness, to respect, to, 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 to loving kindness. You know. And then there's um, you know, development of the, of the mind, which is, you could say, the role of our meditation practice is to for you to get to know what the, the potential of your own mind, what it can do, what it can concentrate, what is mindfulness, the balance of mindfulness concentration, the effort it takes to be present, to be mindful, to be aware. This is what we call the bhavana, the mind development, the meditation practice, developing the mind, not in a very different way that we develop it at university. You know, it's not the... the it's, it's a development which is really baffling, in fact, for us, because every values that we have cherished from young age, they, 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 they totally, um, um, you know, they, 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 they have no efficiency in terms of practice. You know, the achiever, the perfectionist, the, um, you know, the, the, the no-nonsense type of <laughs> way of being, it doesn't work. With meditation, you have to be completely back to the beginner's mind that knows nothing, helpless, sensitive, vulnerable. Um, you know, if you don't come to that place, you, 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 know, you, you still hold that very tight armor around you. you know. So it really goes completely counter to everything we've known so far. You know, I remember one of our, the nuns in our community who's been a really kind of high achiever in her, in her life as a laywoman. She, you know, she was teaching people how to cross the Atlantic Ocean, you know, on a boat or <laughs> kind of high power woman. And she was always baffled. She said, meditation, just everything I've learned just doesn't, never works in meditation. Because to, for meditation practice to develop correctly, it goes through the practice of letting go, doesn't it? And letting go is not an achiever mode, is it? <laughs> Has this little cartoon, somebody showed me this, told me about this cartoon, 
you know, uh, as two guys, sort of two men on the, on the, on the park bench talking to each other. And uh, they kind of, you know, they, they, they sort of street people, you know, they have no home, nothing. And they're just talking to each other, sharing their experience, you know. And one of them is expre- ex- expressing, like, communicating what he's been through and so on. And the other one saying, Yes, you know, for me, I was I was a mayor of my little town. You know, I was had a successful business and everything. I was with lots of money and so on. You know, and I just I just took up to decaf. You know, <laughs> I, I took up decaf coffee. You know, <laughs> you know, and he stopped grasping, and this is what happened. <laughs> he lost. <laughs> so this is what happened when you let go. You see this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a dangerous path, you know. But the Buddha said, you, you know, letting go doesn't go necessarily with being unsuccessful. <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is, you know, the experience of this, this man was, you know, obviously he didn't have much wisdom or much quality that allowed him to carry on letting go and still do well in life. <laughs> so, not much awareness, obviously. But this is how it is, really. Our meditation practice is a great challenge on this path of training because it does, um, it will frustrate every bit of ourselves that wants to go somewhere. And most of the technique in meditation practice are just to allow you to let go without going mad, (laughs) without cracking up altogether, you know going through a nervous breakdown. You know, it's just it's just technique that allows you, with the guidance of your teacher, to allow you to, to say it's all right to fall apart, it's quite all right to, to crack up, and it's quite all right. My teacher, Chantamedu, used to tell us at the beginning, and he said, well, when you come, begin the practice, you know, it's basically an ongoing nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> That's challenging, wasn't it, as a statement? Fortunately, I hadn't, so, you know, never had any kind of nervous breakdown. So, but if I had had one before, I mean, that would have been kind of a bit frightening, the idea of... But it is. It's a slowly disentangling and this kind of um, um, dismantling of that sense of me, you know, what I am to the world. You know. So this is why you need... The, the sila is your container. You know, it sounds like very... Maybe most of us will never want to be just ethical. That sounds so boring, doesn't it? Stop drinking, stop lying, stop gossiping, stop backbiting, stop, you know, taking things that are not given to you, you know, cheating people a bit, you know, uh, picking up things in people's room that, you know, you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, Borrowing things that you're not supposed to borrow, having to be really careful about what you take and don't take, about your speech. I mean, most of the fun we have is when we gossip, isn't it? <laughs> and she did this and he did that. And you know, you know, all that sort of thing. So it does, um, it does take a lot of fun out of life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is another thing. It's a basic fact of practice, you know. It's a lot of fun. You can't even really joke anymore in the way I used to, you know. Because it, it came up to a point where I realized every time I joked, it was at the expense of somebody else. And that was really terrible, you know, to 
have to put my joke down, you know, and to kind of let them go and stop being funny anymore, you know. Because most of us want to, you know, entertain. I mean, not everybody, but some characters look quite, you know, want to be, uh, made other people laugh or whatever. So the joke part had to go. The gossip had to go. And then the backbiting, you know, that really fun. <laughs> that had to go as well. <laughs> and then drinking and all that sort of thing. That had to go. And then, you know, being really nasty to oneself or other people, that had to go too, because that's harmful, isn't it? So most of the precepts actually are, you know, a great eye-opener of what we think fun is. Because most of us, when we break the precept, we have a lot of fun, don't we? In an unenlightened state, of course. Of course. <laughs> an unawakened state. So for the, the sense of self, for me, when I start taking the precepts, I'm, I'm challenged because my fun are going to be heavily challenged. And then we need to look into this, don't we? Where do I want my fun to, to, to lie, you know? But there's plenty of other things you get from this practice, don't worry, you know, it's, it's actually a lot of fun, the practice. As I said to you, you don't go beyond the personality, you go through it. So, once you take on a training, once you train this personality called me, then this is the most funny thing that can ever happen to you, ever. It's the most humorous experience, I can assure you. That's a third fact of practice. It's extremely humorous to see yourself doing all the wrong things, knowing you shouldn't be doing them. Having great ideals about what the Buddha said and what Dogen said and what the Dalai Lama said, what the, all those Bodhisattva did, and act like a nasty little petty, selfish, mean, rotten human being in full consciousness. <laughs> Not even dull or sleepy, you know. <laughs> And this is when you start developing a kind of humor, humorous relationship to yourself. <laughs> so, you know, it's not all bad taking on a, a strict training. It's actually got a lot of fun. It's an acquired state, I agree. <laughs> you know, who wants to, you know, dress like this and shave their head? And it's, it's a special, <laughs> special thing, you know. So. <laughs> and then, of course, having embodied this in a way, it's this um, foundation of, of uh, ethic, commitment to an ethical behavior by body, speech, and mind, and developing the, 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 the heart through practice, through meditation. Then you, the fruits ripen. You, know. you might think for a long time, nothing is happening. Why did I take up Buddhism? You know, I'm just getting worse. I get more angry, more stupid, more dull, more frustrated. People I get on my nerves all the time. My kids keep telling me I'm impatient and I should be a good Buddhist, you know. Challenging me all the time. My dogs don't listen to me anymore. He used to behave and I can't scream at him. <laughs> I have to be kind. <laughs> I need just taking abusing. <laughs> abusing the situation of my loving kindness, my commitment to compassion. 
And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's baffling at first. Because yeah. people can get upset to you, with you. They can be very angry with you. And you have to, if you really practice and you're watching this kind of feeling rising in the heart, wanting to punch, and refraining from it. Yeah. So we need a good container, don't we? Because it's, what is it that's kind of coming up and being held there? It's heat. It's a lot of heat there. A lot of fire. Isn't it? We've, I mean, most human beings are terrified, being burned, burned to death by this fire. Just imagine giving up, you know, cigarettes for one day. Oh my God, I'm going to kill somebody. I used to think like that when I was a novice, you know, and I had to give up. We had this three months retreat during the summertime. And we give up. It's kind of Buddhist Lent. You have to be more kind of morose looking and a bit more kind of subdued and you train more strictly and you give up more little things, you know, like monks and nuns give up cheese and chocolates, things like that in the afternoon. Chocolate. You can have chocolate in the afternoon. We only have one meal a day, you see, so it becomes very meaningful. That sweat of chocolate becomes absolutely enormous perception in your time. <laughs> this is humor, I told you, you know. This is what I mean this is what I'm saying. So you give up but just the thought of giving up chocolate before that three months kind of quote quote unquote Lent, I went through about a week of battling with the thought that I may be murdering somebody if I didn't have my piece of chocolate, at least once a week. But you find it funny, but actually it's real. It's just the way the mind is. It works like that. It will threaten you right to the end. It will turn you into a murderous being for giving up one piece of chocolate. You know, This is the forces of Mara. How Mara attacks. You know, the army of Mara's army. She or he comes in with the daughters or the... It's always the daughters and Mother Mara. But remember the Buddha, the symbol of the Buddha in our own heart, the Buddha himself said, I know you, Mara. But the ego said, oh my God, Mara, are you coming? No, no, I give up, I give up. No, 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 it's all right. I'll have chocolate all three months, you know, it's fine. <laughs> I, won't give you, I, won't, I won't give up anything. I won't renounce, promise, promise. So the Buddha says, I know you, Mara. It's all right. I can bear with all your threats. I can bear with all your deluded thoughts that you're sending into me. I can bear with all that. It's fine. I can be mindful of you, coming, going, coming, going. And at one point, in the scriptures, Mara is always the one. She's always described as this kind of poor little kind of um, pitiful kind of character who's always kind of going on in army, like an army, you know, sort of going on ready for the battle. And she arrives there in front of those enlightened monks or nuns and they say, I know you, Mara. And she goes away with kind of drooping shoulders, disappointed, miserable, depressed. <laughs> and she says, oh, he knows me or she knows me. So this is what Mara is really like. She's just a kind of pitiful little thing. But most of us, you know, we say, well, I give up one hour of sleep on Sunday morning. Oh my God, I can't do that. I go mad. I'll be exhausted all week if I give up two hours in the morning, on Sunday morning, once a year. <laughs> so this is a path of practice. I mean, I've presented it quite broadly and generally this tonight, but, you know, this sort of the, the, the Noble Four Path, as some of you may know it, I'm sure, 
being disciples of Gil, you will know it. Um, you know, you have this Sila Samadipanya, which is ethic, development, practice, and then Panya wisdom. So the fruits of this practice is that you realize for yourself the suffering, the nature of suffering, which the Buddha says is changing and it's, it's, it's not really what you are. This suffering has nothing to do with you. When you're really aware and you let it go and you want to pick it up again, you can't even do it. It's gone. You know, once it's gone, it's gone. It's really interesting. You may be in a terrible state for a day or two and then suddenly it's gone. And you, even if you wanted to conjure it up again, you wouldn't be able to do so. You know, so it's really good news that we have a teaching that is allowing us to see the anatta, the, the no-self quality to all our experiences because this no-self quality is what is really breaking that kind of deluded perception that I'm a constant person here with a problem that I have to solve, you know, that I have to become somebody different, da-da-da-da-da. You know, but actually, all you can, you, all you realize through the practice is that things are arising and passing away. You know, sometimes they are pleasant, sometimes they are not. And of course, through our blindness, we just what is pleasant? So, oh, I like that. What is unpleasant? Oh, I don't want that. You know, it's as simple as this. And that's what I really like about this practice. It makes you so humble. You you can't really get high very much. I mean, you can practice concentration and get blissed out if you want to, you know. But basically, the path of insight is one, Ajahn Shah used to call it, very famous Thai meditation master, he used to say, you know, um, for one thing, he used to say to his disciple when he used to come to the monastery, he said, have you come here to die? To die? I've just come here to practice. I've come here to be free, you know, to die. Baffling, isn't it? And often we, we don't realize dying, that sense means dying to greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, dying to the misery of our life, we're dying to all that stuff. Not dying to the happiness of our mind. The mind itself is quite happy, joyful, when it doesn't have all these um, conditions in, in, in inhabiting it. So, you know, and he, he, he compared the, uh, the practitioner as an earthworm. You know, it's like a little earthworm just going along like this. You know, you've seen earthworm, don't you? They just—they're not going very fast. They're not. They can't pretend to be very much, really. Don't know what it feels to be an earthworm, but can you imagine? You can't imagine being like a lion. You might be the biggest earthworm in the earthworm world, but um, yeah. So. Um, and it's not a linear process, you know, Sila Samadipanya. You know, most of us come from Panya. You know, we have realized somehow, even before we start on Buddhist practice, we have maybe have insight into the fact that life is unsatisfactory or life is limited or there's something that we want other than just, you know, um, living like an animal, you know, just feeding ourselves, eating, sleeping, and, and just dying. Yeah. And then we go, we come to commit ourselves to ethics, maybe through our realization that um, being deluded is very painful, very harmful. So the, the precepts make total sense. They become really a, a clear um, signals that um, unless you 
really commit yourself to skillful actions by body, speech, and mind, then the result of your life will be in, accord- in accordance with uh, what you've um, created. You know, if you created misery, then you'll be miserable. At the end of your life, it'll get worse because you have less control. Your body starts packing up. Your mind starts packing up. You better start quick, really. I'm not kidding. It's true. Because once you get Alzheimer's, I mean, you're beyond practice, aren't you? You know, but if you practice awareness, maybe the awareness will still be there. If your awareness is your refuge, when you die, I mean, I don't think you've got, you know, it depends how you die. I just had a friend who died um, a few days ago, was a neighbor of our monastery. And it was the most beautiful death I've ever seen. Somebody who's not particularly Buddhist or has some interest in this. But, um, and, and she died, you know, she took six weeks to die. She was six weeks without, a f- without food and two and a half weeks without water. You know. And she died very beautifully. You know, it was an extraordinary teaching that to see somebody who, through her own commitment to her path, uh, had developed this kind of awareness that was present right there, even when the body was really weak, when the body was really, the mind was still bright and completely present. You know, and this is what we're doing. When Ajahn Chah said, Are you, have you come in to die? Is that learning to die from moment to moment to our greed, hatred and delusion, and be resurrected, you know, as happier being and strengthened and transformed by this um, aware way of approaching life. So, I've spoken 11 minutes beyond the time. (laughs) I don't know if you have any question time or is that not sort of the thing, Don, or question? Or is it not really... If we yep. end it and then anybody wants to stay after they can sit around. Okay, so what do you do to end? Um, Nothing. <laughs> okay. Thanks.